0: Second podcast for March two thousand six. This is Ordinary Means. You'll find us on the web at ordinarymeans.com. And my name is Sean Nolan. I'm your host, sitting here at the table with Matt Bowling, Peter Jones, three ordinary men calling you back to the Ordinary Means of Grace. Now if you're familiar with our podcast, you'll know that normally we sit around talking about what we want to talk about, which is the ordinary means of grace. Uh, But it seems you want to be talking about that, too. Uh, You've got questions, and you've posted those questions. uh, They're at the blog. If you're looking for the blog, what you can do is go to the website and just click click on the link there that says blog, and that will take you to a place where you can leave comments, let us uh, know what you think about the podcast, comments, suggestions, uh, questions. Those are all... Uh, welcome there on that blog, and we do read it, and we do uh, comment frequently, uh, b- develop conversations with you there on uh, on the web. So what we wanted to do for this special podcast for March is we wanted to take some time and answer some of your questions. Uh, there are a number of questions that we're seeing come up over and over again, and we wanted to take this opportunity uh, to answer some of those and to begin to draw out uh, what these ordinary means of grace are all about? What, what exactly is uh, the big deal? Uh, how exactly does this fit into uh, to our life, uh, both as members of the body of Christ and as leaders, pastors and uh, elders and deacons in the body of Christ? Uh, first question that I've uh, got here this morning is this. This comes from Michelle. Everybody say hi to Michelle. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Michelle. Uh, Michelle asks this question. She asks a question about Romans 10:14 and 15. She asks us, how do we view this? What is our take on Romans 10:14 and 15? So let me read the text to us, and then I'll, I'll give you her follow-up question to it. Uh, she, uh, the text says, how then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. That's Romans ten fourteen and 15. And Michelle asks this question about that text. She says, is this passage limited only to the pastor? Do you believe there are lay evangelists? Or is evangelism the role of the pastor only? Well, I think that it's, it's,
1: it's both. Uh, in one sense, for the last oh, 150 years, it seems that what's predominated is the pastor's job is just to be an evangelist in the sense of um, the predominance of altar calls and things like that. And so it seems like that you bring people to church and mostly what they hear is the gospel, which isn't a bad thing. People share the gospel every week, but a lot more as well. So it's definitely the role of the pastor. First Timothy talks about the fact, or Paul talks to Timothy and says, discharge uh, the work of an evangelist, and that that ought to be a part of what preachers do, is being gospel-centered people who preach a gospel-centered uh, sermons. Um, but I think there's another sense in well in which uh, it's not just the pastor. If we think, for example, about uh, Acts uh, chapter 8, there's a persecution that comes in. Um, and uh, this is, of course, uh, related to Paul and Stephen. And what happens is that in Acts 8 4, we read uh, after Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house, he dragged off, dragged off men and women and put them in prison. That's Acts 8 3. In 8 4, it says this those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And uh, we don't take this in the sense of uh, that these are uh, pastor teachers, um, Ephesians four, pastor teachers that all these people were preaching. I tend to call the small p preaching, but it was proclamation of the word of the gospel.
0: And yeah, this, this was not just a scattering of preachers. Exactly, this was a scattering of the people of God. Absolutely. And I, and I think what we we lose in that Acts passage is we we see that and we think uh, that these people. Uh, just sort of went and they, they naturally uh, talked to other people. But we, we miss what's happened before that, which is Acts 2. But, but, you know, we also see a different distinction in terms of we make too much of a distinction between the role of an evangelist and the role of a pastor. Both are, are really the same. Uh, the only distinction there is that one travels and one stays put. Uh, Even the Apostle Paul, as an evangelist, spent lots and lots of time in each of those cities, and then in Corinth, in Ephesus, and then returned later to spend more time there. And then when he left, he would leave men like Timothy, men like Titus. Uh, So we're not making a a distinction, uh, whereas today we look at an evangelist and we say, an evangelist, his job is to go out and convert them. The pastor's job is then to train them up. That's not the evangelism we see in the Scripture. The evangelism in the Scripture was men going out and planting churches. That's where evangelism took place. That was the result of good evangelism was the planting of a church. Hmm. Absolutely.
2: And just to add to that, even in Timothy, Paul tells, Titus, um, Paul tells Timothy excuse me, to do the work of an evangelist. So there's even a sense in which a regular pastor... Is an evangelist. He is he is proclaiming the gospel, the good news, every time. I don't know what the technical usage there is in, in Timothy, but Paul tells Timothy do the work of an evangelist.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think this also helpfully reminds us um, that that every pastoral ministry is a gospel ministry. That's what the title used to be. That people who were ordained to the gospel ministry. We tend to think of pastors as as the gospel for. pastors give the gospel to unbelievers. But certainly one thing that this pastor's been learning is the more that you read the scriptures, the more that you see that it's a gospel-centered life that believers live. Paul, you even think of just one text off the top of my head, Romans 12, he preaches the gospel to the church. Fullest exposition of the gospel that we have, the first 11 chapters of Romans, and he says, On the basis of that gospel, now here's the way that you live. It's you give your bodies a living sacrifice, that you let your mind be transformed by the word, and then you got five chapters of, you know, how is it that we're supposed to live? It's a gospel formed life. So it's not just for beginners, as Jerry Bridges says.
0: Well, how, how does Paul define preaching? He says, I preach Christ and Him crucified. If our sermons. Uh, I, I often, uh, when I'm uh, working with uh, young men who are who are preaching and learning to preach, uh, I, I'll, I'll listen to their sermon and I'll ask them afterwards, was, was Christ present there? Hmm. You know, d- Did you present Christ in, in all of his fullness? Did you uh, see him? Some of the great guys for this, uh, Edmund Clowney, who Matt, you and I both had the uh, wonderful benefit of being one of his last preaching classes, I think. Uh, he, he, could, he could show you this, that every text points us to Christ. And, and it's not in an artificial way. It's in the sense that Christ is the Logos. Christ is the Word of God. The, the Word of God written down in our Bibles that we have is the Word of Christ. And so seeing him in the scriptures is is the most natural thing uh, thing to do. Now, that's not always going to be easy. And that's why we have these men called pastors that there are certain men who are called, who have an education, who are are set apart to focus on studying the Word of God so that each Sunday they can bring uh, the Word of God to us. And you see, that doesn't make a, you know, we make this clergy-laity distinction. I I think of Martin Luther, uh, who had the great comment about the milkmaid, uh, who milks the cow, milks that cow to the glory of God. You know, all of us are called, we have a phrase we use at our church, every member a minister. Every one of us has a job to be an evangelist. Every one of us has a job to be a preacher. Again, small e, small p. Uh, So we're not making a distinction. Uh, Even the pastor would not be different than the people of God. He's simply called to a different task than the remaining people of God.
1: I think that's important because the scriptures make very clear that this is not uh, that certain people are uh, have more honor in God's eyes, but rather that people are called uh, to different places. 1 Timothy five seventeen says that the elders who direct the affairs of the church are the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. You can think of Acts six and the fact that the apostles who had this work of prayer and the ministry of the word. We're getting distracted from that, especially a focus on prayer and the ministry of the Word. Um, Same thing that 1 Timothy is talking about, 1 Timothy 5.17, by the needs uh, that the Grecian widows had, and that they felt like they were getting uh, the short end of the stick. And so uh, they take care of it. They don't let themselves be distracted from the prayer and the ministry of the Word, but they see this as the special calling that God has put on them. And... um, churches would do well if they want good sermons and they want transformed lives to give their pastors that kind of time to where they can do that kind of transformative ministry because it takes work and time even the best preachers
0: so what we have then in Romans 10 is is a calling to everyone to preach the good news to, to take the good news explicitly to the pastor Explicitly to the evangelist, but implicitly uh, to all of of God's people. Now that raises uh, that raises another question. It's related to this, and that's this uh, distinction between uh, public and uh, private worship. Uh, are the ordinary means of grace only to be a public thing, or are they also
2: a private thing? Hmm. I think the distinction um, we make between these ordinary means of grace and other ways God sanctifies us and conveys his salvation to us is that these are corporate. I think that is one of the distinctions that that needs to be made. I don't baptize my child at home. I don't take the Lord's Supper at home, and I don't preach the Word at home. And I do pray at home. That's the one that's a little more fuzzy than perhaps some of the others but it's not corporate prayer it's not corporate prayer that's exactly right it's me maybe praying with my family but it's not God's people praying it's not God's people preaching the word even when I teach my children in family worship or teach my wife it's not God's people in the fullest sense of the word and so I think one of the distinctions that has to be made here is when Jesus says where two or three are gathered in my name there I am Does that mean that Jesus isn't with me every day, walking with me? Well, of course not. It just means that there's a special sense in which Christ is present. The fire in the temple was a special presence of God. It wasn't that God wasn't everywhere also. It was that when the temple and that fire was there, God was there in a special way. And so I think with these uh, ordinary means, the word, sacraments, and corporate prayer God is there and Christ is there and the Spirit is there in a very special and distinct way. And the two errors we can make is either to make it too special in the sense that the only place we get sanctified is in the church on Sunday morning, which isn't really the error we fall into today. The error we fall into today is that worship is just like everything else and it flattens things out. Well, there's not, there shouldn't be a flattening out Sunday the Sabbath day is special when you're with God's people things are different
0: we we can't just take it or leave it
2: we can't and it's not the same thing as eating dinner at home with with Christians even it's not the same thing and uh, so in today's culture that we live in especially the Christian culture there's a sense in which we want to make everyday worship and that's good and it can also be bad and I think we've gone to the bad extreme today where we hold worship in very little regard uh, and it is not the queen of days for us. It's not a special day for us. There's very little preparation that goes into it. And so I think these means of grace are separate from those other things by their corporate nature.
1: I think as well that, um, I like what Peter said, and we talked about this some before we went on the air today, but uh, I think that the, the corporateness is an important aspect, but I also think that the closeness to the word um, is key to us trying to figure out is something a means of grace or not? We've gotten a couple of different questions that, along this lines. You know, what's what's what is a means of grace? What's the what's the relationship between the means of grace and spiritual disciplines? How do we know uh, if Christian giving is a means of grace? Uh, and at least the way that as I've thought about this, and I don't think this is uh, you know set in stone, is the closeness to the Word. If as you read through the New Testament, an interesting study to do sometimes as you read through the New Testament is to look at the way that the word grace is used. And primarily it's used in two ways. One way that the word grace is used is the disposition of God towards sinners as they come to faith in Christ that this is God's gracious disposition towards them because of the sacrifice of Christ, because of the perfect life of Christ being credited to them. The other sense in which is that it's almost a one-for-one with the Holy Spirit, and in particular the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he indwells and fills believers. And so this is why I link it with uh, closeness to the Word in uh, the preaching of the Word, in prayer, in the sacraments, especially uh, it used to be that public prayer was a gift to be cultivated uh, by pastors, that the public praying in a service of God's people, of covenant renewal, was something that that was to be extraordinarily word-centric, a gift to be developed, a skill to be gained over time. It was part of the training of ministers. And and probably all of you have had this experience that when you are with somebody who prays back to God in his own words, the sentiments of their heart and our gathered heart, you're ministered to. And it's that sense in which that in the word, in that kind of corporate prayer and in the sacraments, that we get the word of God, that word that the spirit has inspired and it resonates with us because that same spirit lives within us and takes that word and applies it to us, convincing us of the love of God and the grace of God of our sinfulness, of our need for Christ. He bears that fruit uh, in us because he lives within us and takes that word and transforms our hearts. And so I think that's at least along the lines how do we know what it means a grace is it's it's the corporateness as Peter said but I think it's also the closeness to the word is it word centric um, is it christ centered
0: well, that's something that the reformers uh, Calvin Luther Knox all all brought out is that you cannot separate uh, the Lord's Supper baptism prayer from the preaching of the Word of God. And that is, that's something that they saw as needing Reformation because they had been separated in the Catholic Church. Right. And so the the, the protesting of the Protestant movement uh, was a protesting against that and a, and a really a back-to-the-Bible movement.
1: Well, I think, too, that we had a question where somebody asked, you know, is... Um, we had talked about in our first podcast that various things could be, a, we might say, a small m at means of grace. Um, my wife, uh, my children, trials, adversity, challenges, disabilities, illness, sickness—you know, anything that comes along, uh, where I might look back and say, "God used that to make me more like Christ." Would, are we proper to call those things means of grace? I think you can, yeah. But I, I think that it's 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 the word of them that makes them means of grace. So it's not just that my wife is wonderful. It's that the word of God in my wife when she comes to me with a seasonable word and says, Matt, do you think you were bearing the fruit of patience with the boys in the tub tonight? You see, it's it's the wordness coming through her. It's more indirect. It's, it's the uh, Jeremiah Burroughs and the Rare Jew of Christian Contentment that under adversity, what is it that I get from the adversity? Well, it drives me back to the word. It drives me back to dependence upon God. And it's in that sense that the wordness comes out.
0: Well, we can consider almost anything, and as you mentioned, we said this in our first podcast, you can consider almost anything a means of grace. Uh, I like to use the analogy of eating cereal in the morning because it's such a such a common practice in America to eat cereal in the morning, and eating cereal in the morning can be a means of grace. It, it may very well be a way that God is, is strengthening you, a way that he's giving you energy for the day that you might that you might serve him. In fact, as we pray with our kids, that's often, often our prayers. Lord, bless this food to our bodies, that we might be strengthened by it. But that doesn't make it, and this is the distinction that Burkhoff makes in his systematic theology, he distinguishes between the objective and the subjective means of grace. The objective means of grace are those particular ways that God's, God works, and that's what we mean when we say the ordinary means. Those things that are so word-centered, as she said, Matt, uh, that they are set apart from circumstances. Because eating cereal in the morning, that's a circumstance. It may be lucky charms but, or providence charms if, if you're <laughs> eating the, the Reformed version of it, the biblical, biblical, if you eat biblical cereal in the morning, your Ezekiel bread and your providence charms. Uh, you know, but it's distinguished. It's distinguished from the ordinary objective means, which is why uh, the confession brings out. It's the word, the sacraments, and prayer. Those are the things that you find in corporate worship.
1: We should probably just hurry to add that when Sean uses the word objective, he's talking about the fact that when uh, Hebrews talks about the fact that some preaching was given to the Hebrews, but they didn't to the Israelites, and they didn't mix it with faith, and it was of no profit to them. And what Sean's, the point that Sean's make, trying to make, which is a good one, is that when somebody believing upon Christ comes to the word, comes to prayer, comes to the sacraments, there is something there always for them. It, the word doesn't come back void in those places, but always is of profit. It's not as though they operate by themselves. They're not objective in that sense that they always work. But that the person who comes with faith on Christ, trusting in him, asking God to transform him by the spirit who lives within him, will be transformed. And that's why God's given it to us.
0: It's absolutely the case. In our last podcast, we talked about the fact, uh, we asked the question, does ordinary mean mundane? Well, in, in this sense, when you compare the word, the sacraments, and prayer to eating cereal, you're actually saying you're using the word ordinary to say this is more special. These are the ways that God normally works, whereas you don't have that guarantee eating the cereal. I hate to push that analogy, but, but that's true. You don't have a guarantee that every time you sit down to eat, it's going to give you the strength that you need. But you do have that promise that the word never returns void, that every time you sit under the preaching of the word with a warm heart, with a heart that is prepared, with a heart that loves Christ, if you bring your faith to the table, God is going to feed you.
2: I think you just—I was going to hit on that, but you said already promises. There's promises associated with the ordinary means. There's no promises associated with other things, you know. I mean, God doesn't say, "Well, get a wife, and I promise you that you will be sanctified." Well, I mean, yes, the wife is a sanctifying influence, and uh, and we need that certainly. And children are sanctifying, and all those things are sanctifying, no doubt. But it's not the promise of a clean heart. It's not the promise of—it's not salvation promises trying to think this through a little bit but there are promises associated with these ordinary means clear distinct promises eat this and you will live you know um um, hear this word it does not return to me void there's promises associated with those things and obviously with prayer there's promises associated with that prayer with prayer and so when we come we can come with faith because there are promises attached covenantal promises attached to these things, and there's not covenantal promises attached to most other things. Now, there are a few exceptions, but for the most part, these are the things that God attaches His promises to.
0: Yeah, God has not given us marriage to seek, save, and sanctify the lost. Exactly. He's given us the word, sacraments, and prayer for that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we got another question from from Lee. Uh, Hi, Lee. Uh, Lee asks. Uh, if we would like to comment on the relationship between the means of grace and the spiritual disciplines. Well, why don't we first, maybe Matt, you could define for us what are the spiritual disciplines. Well, I mean, people, different people's
1: lists would vary, but it would be things such as my own personal Bible reading, um, my, my personal prayer life, even my, my, uh, my family Uh, prayer life and Bible reading together, our family worship, um, things even maybe as uh, giving or hospitality, uh, fasting, uh, meditation, uh, solitude, uh, any of these things could be um you know in a list of spiritual disciplines there's a couple of good books out there Dallas Willard's book uh, Don Whitney's book on spiritual disciplines Don, you know, Don, Don, Don Whitney's, Whitney's
0: book is is excellent
1: um and so it, there are ones out there that if this is not something that you've thought about before um, we, we would really point you toward Don Whitney's book and maybe we can put that up on the on the website and a book list for you. Um, but what's the relationship between these? Uh, again, I, I don't want to play the same harp string again, but I think that, that the closeness to the Word is the key, that, that God especially meets with us over His Word in corporate worship. Uh, but He also meets with us personally. That same Spirit who is with us as a group is with us during the week because He lives within us. And so while There is uh, blessing, obviously, for reading personally. Um, I I think that we're we're kind of playing two strings at the same time. We don't want to lose the emphasis on the uniqueness of God meeting his people in worship and give you the sense that you ought to forsake the gathering of his people together when the book of Hebrews tells you that you shouldn't. But in the other sense, we could link a lot of the uh, unhealthiness in the church in America to the fact that people don't read their Bibles during the week. That people don't pray, that they don't come, uh, as I mentioned in the last podcast, like Edwards did at night and say, Holy Spirit, let me think over my day and bring to my mind any way in which that I did not uh, honor you in thought, word, and deed. That a, that a serious meditation and prayer life is is uh, a key to our spiritual growth.
0: So, so the problem is not only that we are not availing ourselves of the ordinary means, we're not availing ourselves of any means. Very frequently,
1: I think that's the case.
0: And so we need we need both. Yeah. We need the ordinary means and we need uh, the spiritual disciplines.
2: Again, the distinction between the corporate and the private there also. A spiritual discipline is generally something that is done privately. Not always. Obviously, you could fast corporately in a sense. Um, but a lot of the spiritual disciplines are things that we do throughout the week privately and... And a lot of them do not have promises attached to them, per se. Uh, fasting, I don't, perhaps there's a scripture passage, but I can't, it doesn't come to mind, where there's covenantal promises attached to fasting, or there's covenantal promises attached to hospitality. Those are things that are commanded and good. But again, when you come to the means of grace, the word, sacraments, and prayer, there are promises given, objective promises given in those situations for, the corporate, for God's people in a corporate setting. And uh, I think that's really important. It's also worth noting that for centuries and centuries and centuries, most people in the church couldn't read. So, they yet they were still able, obviously, to have uh, God's grace given to them through the preaching of the word. And even though on a daily basis, they couldn't go up to their shelf and pull down a Bible and read it. We have that privilege living in the age that we live in. And unfortunately, more people do need to avail themselves of it. But the preaching so we of a, ta- we take that for granted. We do. We take it for granted. And for uh, centuries, it wasn't even a, a possibility for most Christians. Uh, either literacy, or just not having the means to have a book. You know, you didn't. Books weren't cheap. So um, I think that's. Those are some differences that need to be taken into account. Also, the spiritual disciplines feed the regular means of grace, the ordinary means of grace. They feed it. We read God's word during the week so we'll be ready to hear God's word on Sunday. So we'll be ready to receive communion. So we'll be ready to to understand what baptism means when baptism takes place. So we'll be ready to take part in prayers. It's a preparation, you know. I mean, you practice for Sunday in a sense. I don't want to make that too, uh, make that distinction too too strongly, but there's a sense in which we are preparing for the ultimate Sabbath when we go to be with the Lord. And there's also a sense in which throughout the week we prepare for the Sabbath day. Um, Not that those things don't have benefits throughout the week, but there's preparation that takes place for the Sabbath day.
1: One of the uh, this conference that uh, actually all three of us were at at parts last week, uh, one of the speakers, I can't remember which one it was, talked about the fact that it says, experience as a pastor that many times the people in his church are coming to Sunday and attempting to squeeze out of an hour all of the experience with God that they're hoping to have, which simply isn't possible. Um, You can't individually repent of your sins individually in the midst of a corporate worship service. And yet if you're not doing that, as the catechism talks about, uh, if you're not individually repenting of your sins individually, it's extraordinarily difficult for you to stop doing those sins. In fact, it's impossible, because you don't know what it is yet that you need God to transform you by the Word and Spirit in your own heart. And so uh, we have to look at Sunday as the as unique, but it ought to be the icing on our worship cake, not the entirety of it. It ought to be that we have come with pre warmed hearts because we've been worshiping personally and in families, and we come together uh, to worship together a God whom we've experienced all through the week.
0: And, and if we're not doing that, so so often uh, people say, you know, I'm, I'm I don't go to that church anymore because it just didn't meet my needs it just didn't give me what i was looking for uh, when before we leave a church for that reason we need to say well am i not being adequately prepared to come to worship as you as you said matt if i'm not individually repenting during the week and then i come into the worship service and we have a time of rep- of corporate repentance uh, that feels uncomfortable that that feels out of uh, the realm of of where i've been i'm not in that I'm not in that mode because I have not been repenting uh, throughout throughout the week. Absolutely. There's also a sense in in which the spiritual disciplines uh, take on a uh, supernatural uh, sense in our lives, and I mean that in an, in, a, uh, in a in a in a bad way, uh, Harry Reader. Uh, at this Embers to Flame conference that we all went to recently told the story of a uh, gentleman he was going golfing with. And they were golfing and this, this first uh, first hole was alongside of a freeway and so he's, he's absolutely fearing that he's going to slice the golf ball it's just going to go veering out into this uh, traffic-laden freeway and it's going to smash through one of these windows and he's going to be sued and he's, the church is going to be sued and everybody and their brother is going to be sued because of this. And so he, he takes the shot and it's, it's an okay shot. It, it, it's a long drive. And his friend gets up there and his friend takes this shot and he just swings and you can see the slice in the swing and it goes veering up towards the freeway and he's just he's shaking with fear at this point and he says at the very last minute it it hits this branch on the uh, the topmost branch of this tree uh, along the freeway and it bounces off and it bounces uh, onto a rock and then it, it hits a hill and it rolls down right onto the green and and his friend looks at him and he says i did my devotions this morning We often think about our spiritual disciplines that way: that if I, if I can just real quick read my, if I can do my devotions, everything's going to work out okay for me. Well, that's not a spiritual discipline, you know. That's that's a spiritual. You're looking for a spiritual paycheck by by doing a duty, and that's not the way God works. God says, y- you do these things because you love me. It's, it's part of a relationship. You know, I don't spend time with my children out of duty. I spend time with them because I love spending time with my kids. They're hilarious. Uh, the things they say and the things they do and the ways they sanctify us. As Peter, as you said earlier, so we do need to make that distinction, that just doing these things, either it's my, my personal spiritual disciplines or even just sitting in a church on Sunday, Does not a Christian make me? But what we need to be doing is uh, having a heart that is in relationship with God through faith, and when we have that relationship through faith, then the grace will come to us.
2: Coming from Reformed tradition or thinking along Reformed lines, most of us would never say baptism automatically infuses grace or, or it's automatic but how many of us approach devotions and private prayers if that's the case so in a corporate setting we're all careful to make sure it's not automatic but in, for some reason when our private lives when it comes to spiritual disciplines oh i did my devotions today today's going to be a good day you know or oh i spent 10 minutes in prayer you know now it's all going to be good well uh, still faith faith is still necessary and, and it's got to be done properly. So you don't want to take we – we'd be very careful not to approach corporate things that way. But sometimes we do approach the private world that way. As if I just check this list off, you know, if I've got devotions and private prayer and, and I'm not doing A, B, C, and D, then I know things are going to go well for me. You know. And, uh, and I think we have to be careful of that. Well, that's, that's essentially
0: paganism. And this is one of the ways that we see that paganism has infected the church. Because in in pagan cultures, what do they do if, if it hasn't rained for six months? Then they've got to appease the rain gods. And we view our uh, personal Bible study that way, our personal devotions. If I can just appease the God of personal devotions then he will make my day good. And that's one of the ways, that's one of the reasons that we have this podcast is because we want uh, to help you to see clearly uh, that we, t- how to make that move away from adopting the culture and the way a pagan culture looks at life and come back to the way God says you're to look at life. It's not appeasing the gods. It's pleasing the God by faith.
1: Yeah, I think it's a great point, point. I really do, because I think that we can. uh, our teaching on justification is so weak that we're thinking that God's going to love us more if I do my devotions and He'll love me less if I don't, instead of focusing on the fact that the Word was given to us, that we'd know ourselves and we'd know Him, and He's made it possible for us to know ourselves and to know Him by the work of the Spirit in our hearts, and we had a hunger for that, just like we had a hunger to know our wives and our kids and ourselves and our people in our churches, and... Other believers and non-believers—it's a relationship in that true sense. And when we get the word out of focus, that it's not the way in which we converse with God. He speaks to us through the word. We speak to Him in prayer. Um, when we miss that, uh, we start uh, keeping track, keeping tally, treating God like He's a slot machine. I do X, He does Y.
0: Like Be- like Benjamin Franklin with his his checklists of virtues. And trying week after week to, to fulfill all the checklists, and eventually, essentially, that comes back to salvation by works, mm-hmm. and and that's not what the ordinary means are about. It's by grace through faith. That's why we call them the ordinary means of grace. Well, let's close uh, this morning. One question that I've, I've gotten from a number of different folks is, man, you guys reference a lot of books. Uh, could you put a a bibliography of some sort up on the website? And I think the answer to that is yes. We would love to, and we're going to do that. Uh, But until we can get that up, uh, I just want to open it to you guys and say, if you could recommend one or two books uh, for folks to be looking at right now, what would you recommend?
1: Well, I'm going to give an odd recommendation and then a, a less odd one, but um, the first recommendation is a book um, by Dave Paulison, uh called Counseling with New Eyes, and I think the subtitle is Seeing People Through the Lens of Scripture, and this is a book written for those who would be trained to counsel people, uh, and you may look at that and go, what? How does that relate to ordinary means? Here's how it relates. When we move away from the ordinary means of grace, what we're essentially saying is we've got to add to God's Word and His working by the Spirit through the Word in people's lives to see people transformed. And what it is is a loss of confidence in the Word of God in the hands of the Spirit to change people. And one of the reasons is we have so many competing voices for how people are actually changed. And what this book does is help you see people scripturally, see yourself scripturally, and see, oh, wait a second. I can be changed people can be changed by the word and we have confidence that the, that God that God the Holy Spirit with the word in his hand can change us Uh, then we're more apt to rely on the ordinary means instead of something else. The other one is a book that I just brought back to my memory at this conference we went to last week, which is Jack Miller's book, um, Repentance, and it's now Repentance and 21st Century Man. And it's a very simple book, um, but if it's resonated with you that repentance is a piece that's missing frequently in in the scriptures, maybe it's something that's missing in your own life. You're wondering, uh, what does repentance really look like? Maybe that's why I'm not being transformed through the Word is because I don't know what repentance actually is. Jack Miller does an excellent, excellent job of describing biblical repentance, and that would be well worth your time.
2: Um, I think you could go back to, instead of reading about certain men, read certain men, and by that I mean like Calvin and Augustine in particular. I think a lot of us, uh, they have, and you can almost pick up anything by these guys, almost anything. Uh, But you could pick up the Institute to read the section on the sacraments, on preaching, on prayer. You could pick up uh, Calvin's treatises on the sacraments. You could pick up some of Augustine's stuff. Any of that, a lot of times you hear about these guys secondhand. Oh, I think Calvin said this about that from somewhere. No, no, no. Go go get it. Pick it up and read it, and you'll find it fresh and good and very relevant to what's going on. Um, th- that, that would be my key recommendation. Also, with the worship service, Uh, I think the worship is important, and obviously a lot of this takes place, all this takes place within the context of worship. I'd recommend The Lord's Service by Jeffrey Myers. I think that's an excellent book on the nature of worship. What worship is about some chapters in there you may not agree with totally, but I think his general overview of what worship is covenant renewal and how it is not just a New Testament thing but it's also an Old Testament thing and how the New Testament fulfills that I think is an excellent uh, way to go again you may not agree with all all the chapters in there in particular near the end of the book but the first part of the book is excellent so th- those are things I'd recommend.
0: Very good. Well, I would just I would add to that uh, two books. If you're, uh, if you're part of a church that has not had what we would call an ordinary means of grace ministry to its people, if the focus of your church has not been on the Word, the sacraments, and prayer is central to everything that we do, uh, I would recommend two books. One is by Harry Reader, who we've mentioned a couple times here. Uh, because he's so fresh in our mind, we went to this this conference. He has a book entitled From Embers to a Flame. And that's an, that's an excellent uh, short book for helping you to see how you can take a church that has fallen away from its first love, Jesus Christ, and, and bring that church back uh, to a trust in the ways that God works. Uh, another book that is similar is a book by Mark Dever and Paul Alexander uh, entitled The Deliberate Church. And that book as well, both of those books would say, well, they're not there to to give you a new program, they're not there to give you anything innovative, Uh, they're not there to give you a new uh, church growth method, but they're there simply to call you back to what the Bible says uh, we should be doing, and what the ways that God says uh, that he works uh, by faith through his word. Well, guys, thank you for joining me around the table and uh, those listening. uh, We thank you for listening. Uh, We'll be back. uh, This is March, so we'll be back in April with a whole other podcast, and we look forward to having you join us. We look forward uh, to having more conversation on the ordinary means of grace. In the meantime, be sure and head over to OrdinaryMeans.com. Be sure and click through to the blog. Leave your comments, questions, and uh, as we did today, we'll do more answering your questions. So as we leave you today, may the Lord richly bless you as you pursue him through his ordinary means.